women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about and with the change-making women of Princeton University. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and I'm talking today with Frances Arnold, class of 1979. If you haven't heard, Frances has just won the Nobel in Chemistry, so congratulations. Thank you, We're Margaret. very, very, very pleased you're on campus. Uh, Frances studied mechanical and aerospace engineering at Princeton as an undergraduate. Uh, not too long later, she ended up at Berkeley, where she did a PhD in chemical engineering. Caltech snatched her up almost immediately, and she's now the Linus Pauling Professor of Chemical Engineering, Bioengineering, and Biochemistry. So, Frances, thank you again very much for coming and making time for us. It's great to be here. I wanted to tell you um, about the moment that I heard about your award and, and, and about 3,000 of your, your co-alumni uh, from Princeton. We were just coming to town for the uh, She Roars Conference, which is the the uh, namesake of this podcast. Uh, President Chris Eisgruber brought us all into Jadwin Gym for some, for some um, welcoming remarks, and when he mentioned the news again, the place just erupted. <laughs> uh, it was a thrilling moment, it really was. And, and for me, it was a testament to the power that the Nobel has on all of our imaginations. There's not another prize, I think, for academics that, that, that everybody knows about, but also uh, how important it is for women. Could you tell me what that moment was like when you got what they call the magic call? Because I've heard that even the, the Nobel Committee calls it the magic call. Well, I was sound asleep. Mm -hmm. So that, that moment was first terror that there was some problem at home and then quickly replaced by exhilaration uh, when I was told that I would be awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. Who did you call first? Oh, well, I couldn't call anyone for the first 25 minutes because I was waiting for the press conference. But I tried to call my sons, and of course, they don't answer the phone when mom calls. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not at 5 in the morning or whatever time it was. But Caltech called me and uh -huh. said, congratulations, and yeah. can we get you home? So while you were celebrating here at Princeton, yeah. I was walking around in circles trying to figure out how to get flight home. Um, well, you did get home. You got on a plane, and within a couple of hours, I think, certainly it looked like it was midday here, uh, you were having a press conference at, uh, uh, at Pas in Pasadena at Caltech. And you said something that really caught my imagination at the time, because it wasn't something I expected from a chemical engineer whatsoever. Can I read it to you and, and, uh, and get your thoughts, ask you why you said it? You said, um, well, we, my group, my research group, we want to develop the science and technology that will help us survive on our planet, thrive on our planet, and share it with all the other creatures that we share it with. Is that something that has motivated you throughout your career? Or did you grow into that? And how did you think that chemical engineering was gonna be a promising path? Well, I started worrying about the nexus between science and society here at Princeton under the leadership of people like Rob Sokolow, uh, who were really asking these deep questions of how will we feed a growing population without destroying the things we care about, the things that we really value. And I value the natural world. Uh, so I wanted to develop a career where I could use my engineering background to have a positive benefit on society. Chemistry makes everything we need in our daily lives, your clothes and your eyeglasses and the things we sit on. It's all materials and fuels and chemicals that we have to make. And the footprint of that industry is very large. 
a lot of pollution. Uh, and, and, and to live sustainably, we have to come up with ways to do it that are completely different from how we're doing it now. Right now we're pumping oil out of the ground and making what we need and polluting our atmosphere and our waterways. Biology doesn't do that though. Biology makes, does chemistry very efficiently. Mm -hmm. So I set out as a chemical engineer when I switched over from mechanical to chemical engineering to figure out how could we use biology mm -hmm. to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, I want to um, drill down on the actual work behind mm -hmm. the, the Nobel because um, again, it's a little bit of a, um, a mouthful for, for, for non-chemists. Uh, it was for the directed evolution of enzymes. So maybe you can help me unpack that. You've got your idea of a nano lecture. I'd like a nano lecture if I can. <laughs> let's, let's start with enzymes, which are proteins mostly for the most part. And you describe yourself as a protein engineer, which if I understand it correctly, means you kind of get under the hood of these proteins, these enzymes, and, um, and tinker with them to make them do something that they don't do naturally. Uh, can you explain why anybody would want to do that? Why, why enzymes? Well, the, if you look at how biology takes renewable resources, simple starting materials like carbon dioxide and sunlight, and converts that into life, into living organisms, the enzymes are the catalysts, the workhorses of life that do that magical transformation. So these are molecules that are the best chemists on the planet. Hmm. Just a molecule. Hmm. And we humans have only appreciated them and seen their structures for the first time in pretty much, not much longer than our lifetimes. Huh. So when I saw an enzyme for the first time and realized what a beautiful molecular machine this was, I said, that's what I want to engineer. That's interesting. It's the most complicated chemical factory on the planet, all made encoded in DNA. And I said, that's what I would like to do for the rest of my life, is build new versions of these that will not solve the problem of life, but will solve the problem of how humans live on the planet sustainably. And you said, you've said in the past that you were lucky enough to, to, to be in Northern California, right, when the biotech revolution was hitting. So, so none of this sounded like hair, you know, pie in the sky sort of stuff. It was, it was real and possible, if not very difficult. Is that That's right? right. These new technologies of cutting and pasting DNA were just being developed for the first time. And it became abundantly clear to me that we could engineer the biological world. We didn't know exactly how to do it. Right. But the tools were being developed right then. Okay. So going back to the Nobel, it's for the directed evolution of enzymes. We've just talked about the enzymes part. Let's talk about the directed evolution part. Um, maybe it's a good start to ask, what was the prevailing approach uh, before you began work in the field that led to the Nobel? And then how did you do things differently? If you look at the way that engineers design things, they generally sit down and lay out a blueprint for a bridge or a factory, and they have some idea of how everything fits together. But the biological world is so much more complicated, and we're just uncovering these principles for the first time. So that even today, much less back in 1988 when we started doing these experiments, no one could sit down and design an enzyme or even reliably improve something that nature mm -hmm. had designed. But there's an engineering process that's 
truly remarkable in the biologic world. The process by which all the remarkable diversity of biology has come about. I think you're talking about evolution. It's called evolution. Yeah. <laughs> so to me as an engineer, I said, well, if there's already a process that works, why not use that? Mm -hmm. And it's something humans have been doing for 10,000 years, breeding everything from corn to carrier pigeons, cows, racehorses. We have been doing the same thing at the level of large organisms. Mm -hmm. Why not do it for protein? Huh, okay. So how do you do that for proteins? How do you breed and evolve a, a, a protein or an enzyme in this case? Well, if you think about it, if you want to breed a hairless cat, <laughs> which, <laughs> which humans might. have done, okay, it serves our purposes, right? <laughs> if you're allergic to cats, it's a wonderful mm -hmm. alternative and it still allows it you to have scare a cat. You to death. <laughs> That's right. Then you have to take cats that have that possibility and you as the breeder choose who mates with whom mm -hmm. and maybe over multiple generations you can start acquiring some properties that you're interested in. It's pretty much the same thing mm -hmm. with molecules. Instead of having cats mate with cats, we breed the DNA. Mm -hmm. We take the actual DNA that encodes a protein in a test tube and we mix it together we mutate it, we change the sequence, making a few mistakes once in a while. So maybe like smoking cigarettes uh -huh. or something, <laughs> okay. we can make <laughs> changes in the DNA. And then we let that DNA express itself mm -hmm. by making the proteins and bacteria mm -hmm. will do that for you with recombinant DNA technology. Then I choose, I'm the breeder, I choose mm -hmm. who goes on to parent the next generation, mm -hmm. acquiring new features in proteins and these enzyme catalysts that make them more and more useful to mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about that useful uh, part because again, um, you've been quoted many times and I've heard this from other engineers too, that engineers are the scientists that really want to make sure that what they do has direct impacts. It's very, very useful. So um, what has directed evolution done for us lately? What, 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 your work started maybe 25 years ago or yes. so. Uh, what has been the outcome in the last couple of decades? Well, it's actually quite impressive. I, I didn't do any of these applications, maybe a couple of them, but the, uh, these methods are sufficiently simple that they propagated to laboratories all over the world. And so I get some tiny bit of credit, <laughs> even though I don't do any of the work. For example, Merck makes some of their biggest drugs using enzymes mm -hmm. that replace toxic metals mm -hmm. that they used to use in chemical processes and really reduce the waste footprint mm -hmm. of making pharmaceuticals. So Genuvia for treating diabetes uh -huh. is made with an enzyme that was developed by directed evolution. The enzymes you find in your laundry detergent that takes stains off clothes. Nature never made an enzyme that likes to work in laundry detergents, <laughs> but people bred them okay. using my methods uh, to work very well. Enzymes help you use much less energy, so mm -hmm. you, you don't have to use high temperatures. You find uh, enzymes made by directed evolution in textiles industry, in agricultural industry, consumer products all over the place, diagnostics, mm -hmm. even medicines that treat disease. Okay. You may know, I hope you know, uh, and if not, I'm here to tell you, that, the, uh, that Princeton is putting new effort into its own uh, bioengineering um, uh, strengths, uh, a new commitment to build support and so on and so forth. And I think bioengineering is kind of joined at the hip with your, your type of chemical engineering. Um, if you 
cast forward for another 30 years, um, what kind of hopes do you hold? Why would a young person go into chemical engineering or bioengineering today? What might we see uh, in 30 years as a result of it? We are just scratching the surface when it mm -hmm. comes to understanding the biological world, but especially when it comes to being able to use biology to solve human problems. Mm -hmm. Uh, biology is the best chemist on the planet. Biology is the best engineer on mm -hmm. the planet. So we have a lot to learn, and we have a lot to benefit from learning how biology solves problems and actually using some of those solutions for human problems. I personally would love to see a chemicals industry that's based entirely on clean, green biological processes. Mm -hmm. We place these factories with bacteria mm -hmm. to make what we need in our daily lives and do it from renewable resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about biofuels and those sorts of things? Well, it, so the technology, and I worked on this for years, uh, the technology is excellent. Mm -hmm. It's just that oil is so cheap that it's very hard to compete. So I the see. technology works, but you can't make any money at it. Yeah. And until we are willing to pay the price, the environmental price of pumping oil out of the ground, it's going to be hard to compete uh, with that industry. Yeah. That will change. I've seen it change several times over my career. Yeah, yeah. And it will change again. And of course, the impetus uh, caused by climate change might inspire people to do it even before the, the, <laughs> the commercial <laughs> <hope> applications so. <laughs> are there. Yeah. Let's hope so, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are commercial applications. My company, for example, Jivo, is making fuel that uh, airlines fly on. Oh, but really? it's more expensive mm -hmm. than, and, and since it's more expensive, it's not going to be widely used until the prices mm -hmm, mm -hmm. become more competitive. And policy interventions can have a role there, too, of they course. They have a huge role. Uh -huh. right? yeah. I want to go back, if I can, to, um, to that 25 years ago moment or whatever number it was when you first started to explore this approach. And um, uh, I read that you said at the time, or you said later, that at the time there was some sniffiness in some quarters, right? That it wasn't considered science or that it, gentlemen wouldn't, wouldn't use this approach. I wonder if you could comment on that or say more. Well, if I, I'm remembering back on these times a lot these mm -hmm. days, and uh, here I was, uh, pretty much completely ignorant engineer coming into a field dominated by biochemists. Mm -hmm. And the biochemists really want to understand how the natural world works. So their approach to engineering proteins would be to get the structure of the protein, which took a long time, mm -hmm. and then to try to model how different parts of this big molecule would affect its properties. I just wanted to solve the problem, uh -huh. right? I just wanted to make a better protein, and how you did it was less important than the actual outcome. That's interesting. So I just said, well, let's do a thousand experiments at once. Let's mm -hmm. just make changes in this protein at random and search through those very quickly uh -huh. to find the ones that are beneficial, and then build on that to evolve them. So it was this problem-solving attitude and the willingness to completely bypass the deeper understanding of the system uh -huh. that the chemists and biochemists were taken aback by. Uh -huh. But then I got results. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and once you have results, you have the answer. Mm -hmm. And you can see how biology solved that problem. 
and learn kind of what reverse the rules engineering are. in a sense, right? That's you, exactly right. That's really, really it's interesting. Really nice to start with the answer. That's really <laughs> interesting, huh? Well, uh, I, I I'm also struck. So again, back in the beginning of this, uh, there's a fair amount of personal risk involved from a career development point of view. I think, right? I mean, we as non non academics very often imagine that there's this you know this brain trust that is out there and, and great ideas are always pursued but really it's embedded in an academic system and a tenure system that can make being a maverick kind of um, a risky thing to do uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you gave that any thought when you were going down this new road and whether you worried about your tenure committee or your tenure decision well everyone worries about tenure but I never worried about risk mm -hmm. because I knew from the beginning that this was the right way to go. Mm -hmm. So I never did a calculation, is this a risky thing to do? It's just completely obvious mm -hmm. How did me. you know that? It was just, you, you, you felt it? The first experiments we did, the solutions were so surprising mm -hmm. that when I saw them, I said, no one will be able to design this. So then you had that moment like, yes, I yes. got it. <laughs> yes, and it came early on. This okay. was early on, and I said, I know that this will be good for many years and mm -hmm. it will be enabling and important. It took me 20 years or so to convince the rest of the world, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I knew that it was important. Well, that's another thing I really want to kind of ask you to think about for us. Uh, where does that kind of um, confidence, if not courage, intellectual confidence and intellectual courage come from? I'm going to spin you back, if I can, a little bit to to uh, when you started here at Princeton University. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, you said once that you uh, chose mechanical and aerospace engineering because it was uh, the one that had the least number of uh, uh, requirements so that you could do all kinds of other things that were interesting to you. Yes. Can you just riff on that and tell me what your thoughts were? <laughs> well, if you think back to the 1970s, there were very few women applying to do mechanical and aerospace engineering. And frankly, I thought it would give me a leg up in the admissions process. <laughs> and I felt that if I really didn't like it, I could always switch out. True enough. But right. I never did. Mm. And then I found out it had relatively few requirements, which enabled me to take courses in many different things that I was interested in. And uh, I've never changed. I am a happy engineer. Yeah. What, what kinds of other courses did you take? I, mean, I know that you're a linguist, for example. I took a lot of language courses. I took also, I took Russian. I took Russian literature. Oh, Those right. were fabulous courses. I took economics. I took developing world economics. I took Marxist theory. Mm -hmm. I did all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally find mm -hmm. on the uh, engineer's docket, but it made an educated person out of me. Yeah, but do you think it uh, helped feed the creativity that ultimately made you successful as a scientist? I can't imagine not being able to read and write and make these connections from literature and philosophy that have helped inform my understanding of evolution. Mm -hmm. So the answer is clearly yes. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunity I had at Princeton because I got a very good foundational education. At mm -hmm. the same time, I was learning a few skills in mechanical engineering. But I never thought I would be a mechanical engineer as mm -hmm. I was doing this. I wanted to be an educated person and find out what it was that I really wanted to do. Uh, so those skills uh, were, were important to me to to acquire. One of my colleagues, because you did all sorts of things as, as, as um, 
you, you left Princeton. I think you worked as a taxi driver. You, you worked in the solar industry. And so one of my colleagues has described it as a career that was directed evolution in its own right. <laughs> random random <laughs> paths. Exactly. <yes. laughs> no rational design to be seen. And do you recommend that? I mean, I know you don't recommend exactly your path, but do you recommend uh, directed evolution of a person's career? Well, I rec recommend getting out of your comfort zone and trying things. Because how do you know what you like and what you don't like unless you try it? Mm. And every experience, even the less than positive ones, is a piece of information about you and your relationship to the world that you can put in your pocket for later use. Mm -hmm. And I've come back many times to things that I learned, uh, even as a taxi driver, that have served me well. And that's the ability to be in difficult situations and figure out how to solve how do you get your cab from here to there in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on very windy streets without a GPS. <laughs> you just have to do it. Congratulations. Have you tried <laughs> London with that? <laughs> they wouldn't let me on the streets, but Pittsburgh, yes. <laughs> That is, that's really interesting. I, I, I have to ask you about, I've talked a little bit or asked you a little bit about your intellectual wanderings, but you did do a lot of actual physical wandering mm -hmm. throughout your career. I mean, you took, you took time off, you took a year off after college, and you took, I'm sure you, other times as well, but I was really struck by a time when you took your entire family, your children, on a, what I would call a walkabout of, mm -hmm. the, of the world for a whole year in the okay. middle of your career. What, uh, what made you do that, and, and you know, what, did, what experience did you hope that they were going to get out of that? Well, there were a lot of forces that made that time particularly good. I had a 13-year-old son who was having mm -hmm. trouble in school, and I realized that he just needed to get out. He needed to go to a completely mm -hmm. different environment. So what did I do? I just plunked backpacks on all three kids, five, six, and 13. Ah. My husband and I traveled the world for an entire year, going to Africa, Australia, England, uh, and it was just a magical experience because I watched my children's brains go like this, just sucking up the world and all the animals and all the people and all the cultures. It was clearly the best year of my life. Yeah. That's fascinating. I mean, um, I think everybody wishes, many people wish they could do it, and very few people have the courage to do it. Or, or, or Because it does take, as I say, time out of your career, time out of their education, their formal education. So well, that wasn't testament. a problem, because I have this wonderful lab at Caltech where everybody wants my job. <laughs> we train future professors. So I looked at them and I said, you want my job? All right. Take it <laughs> for a year. <laughs> you can have it for a year. And they did a marvelous job. We did really well that year. And did you? Come and all back? those people are professors now. Like it or not, now and forevermore, you're going to be considered a uh, a role model for women in STEM. Um, is that something that you embrace? STEM being science, technology, engineering, and, and math subjects. Mm -hmm. Well, it has embraced me. <laughs> yes, of course. And I think it's hard and challenging for men and women. Mm -hmm. uh, women are doing really well. This is the, the great change that uh, has happened since I was a, a young person at Princeton to today. Women are doing really well if they choose to do it. Mm -hmm. So what I want to do is encourage women to take on this incredibly exciting and fun challenge to use their yeah. brains for the benefit of humanity uh, but through science and technology. Don't let the guys have this. This is, this is great 
great career material. You're right. Well, okay. <laughs> With that, I'm going to say thank you very, very much for joining us, Francis Arnold. It's great to be here. And I want to thank also our audio and video engineer, Dan Kearns, and our producer, Danielle Alio. And to the audience, say please come back. We'll be here again soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.